Now that's mentioned in the book of Zechariah along with the other fasts of the months. And uh, Zechariah is a book of prophecy about the end time. So I'll make a few comments here about it so we have a little better idea of uh, what this is about today as opposed to the siege that was started against Jerusalem on the tenth day of the tenth month uh, historically. As we know, uh, is, uh, Jerusalem fell eventually and the temple was destroyed and then Gedaliah was killed the other three fasts of the year. Is that me making that spot on there or something's wiggling around? Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, uh, in the winter, on the 10th of the 10th, is when that siege against Jerusalem started and continued until the fall of Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, we see much in Scripture and the prophecies about Israel, Judah, particularly Ephraim, which we are. And we sit poised right now that things could begin to truly come apart in the next, say, three weeks, between now and January 20th. And in a way, a siege has begun in, the, in, the, in our nation. Uh, we've had cyber attacks, and our military is all up in arms because apparently the Chinese, maybe with some Russian and Iranian collusion, we don't know for sure, mainstream media is calling it Russia and Iran, Alternative news is mostly saying it's the Chinese. I think they're all involved, frankly, uh, because they will all be involved in our destruction. But they've hacked into not only our computers, but the ones that control the codes for launching our nuclear weapons. And if they have indeed done so, which it appears the case, uh, it only takes us about a week to look into all that, uh, provide a fix for it, and get new codes and so on. So some are speculating that they could have some kind of attack or a regional war will start within the next seven days. I don't know that that's the case, but I know that it is imminent. Uh, I think there will be some severe disruptance between now and January 20th of some kind politically uh, because Trump either has to concede or try to do something about it and he only has a short window of time now to declare martial law or the Insurrection Act or whatever uh, and stop an illegal election which obviously has occurred and there is foreign uh, involvement in that with the Dominion uh, vote counters and everything, as I'm sure you're aware. So I wanted to make note of that a little bit uh, because we have impending chaos and confusion as things begin to come truly apart, not just threats of it. And it makes me wonder, too, uh, we had, I guess it was in Florida, a nurse who was having the vaccine uh, on camera. They were going to show this. And she uh, died right there on the spot. And there have been reports of all kinds of uh, reactions, bad ones, to the vaccine already, just in the tests they've done. And what if people decide they better not do that? And their plan to have us all vaccinated begins to sort of come unraveled. Well, they've taken it this far. Well, that means the mouth diapers have to continue for sure if the vaccine isn't going to be accepted. And uh, not only that, they're going to have to come up with another way to keep us in slavery and to get us further into slavery. And that could indeed be martial law and cutting off of food supplies and various things to further subject us and the scripture does say famine and pestilence come first. So lack of food and then disease is the way God has it lined out. So we have to look at the scripture and look at what is going on and say, if what they're doing isn't going to work the way they want, what will they do next? 
And what they finally wind up doing is going to fit the Scripture. That I have absolute faith in. So exactly how it come down, comes down, we don't know. But this cyber attack has occurred in the last day or two, and uh, we have the fast on the siege of Jerusalem coming up. Now, I've been saying now for over 25 years uh, since this message came that these events happen first in the church, then in the nation. That spiritual Israel is the first one to uh, bear the brunt of the prophecies, and that then the nation bears the brunt secondarily. Now, the church gets it mostly spiritually by having God turn his face and spew us and so on. And we've had that kind of a uh, famine and pestilence, and many have died spiritually and quit spiritually and so on. So that devastation has already occurred in the church so very obviously. And it is interesting to me, in looking at the pattern, But January of 79 is when the state of California laid siege to the church. So it happened in January. Uh, Herbert Armstrong died or was killed on January 16th of 1986. And the spiritual siege against the church and against the truth began to occur right then because the Tkachas already had had in mind what they wanted to change and where they were headed, and they immediately began to lead the church back into Protestantism and so on. So both the physical attack by the state on the church happened in January, and then the spiritual attack by the Tkachas and Satan began in January. Uh, You see the pattern. And now... Uh, those things having happened in the church, it looks like the flying apart of this nation could truly begin in January as we get closer to an inauguration if one occurs, or how it occurs, or who it occurs with, or whatever. That is not settled yet. And how will it be settled, and how much will foreign uh, input be? You know, I, I, I've said this before, but I began to see this pattern in the church way back of the plain truth, the broadcast, all these things happening in January. Uh, And somebody asked me toward the latter part of the summer in 1985, since Mr. Armstrong was sick and seemed to be deteriorating pretty rapidly. Well, somebody asked me after services one day, I remember it very distinctly outside the hall where we met in Soldotna, Alaska. says, is Mr. Armstrong really going to die? Is God going to let him die? And I said, I don't know if he'll die or not, but if he does, it will be in January. I remember stating that very emphatically. Now, I wasn't I didn't have a vision or a dream from God about that. I mean, it wasn't a prophetic thing in that sense in any way. It's just that I had been observing, even up to that time and before that, what happens in January in the church, good and bad. So when he asked the question, I don't know whether he's going to die or not, but if he does, it'll be January. And he died on January 16th. Oh. It wasn't anything but just looking at the pattern. So today I'm looking at patterns of when Church of the Great God began in January of 92, uh, when the information that I've been preaching these last 25 years came was in, could have been January 16th of 96. I'm not sure, but it was within two or three days of that. I didn't write it down and I didn't pay much note. It was the message that was important to me, not the day it happened or something like that. But it was very near that, because I'd reported to work in Charlotte, and I'd made it a point to on January 1st of 96, having been hired at the feast in 95. But And he didn't tell me when to report to work, but I felt like I needed to be there January 1st. 
and was, and then this information began to come within two to three weeks afterward. Uh, so, who knows whether January of the Gregorian calendar is the one Joel 2 speaks of. I, I mentioned this last week, but I, it's on my mind. Uh, will be when these blessings begin to occur from Joel 2, or will it be the first uh, month of God's calendar in April? I, I think one of the two, but certainly we need to be aware of the fact that this nation is in danger of flying apart in January, just a few days from now, and that God's blessings will begin with this church in the first month, whether it be the Gregorian or the sacred calendar, remains to be seen. But I want us to be aware of it and aware of where we are and that these things are very, very close. Uh, so that's what the siege, to me, of the tenth month is all about, is the siege not only against the church and Christianity as a whole, but also the siege against our nation is gaining momentum from our enemies around. So uh, everything is fitting the pattern, in other words. So we'll see exactly how fast it develops, but uh, the seeds for real trouble are certainly there. Which begs the question of what do we need to be doing, and I started in on the subject of Matthew 5, 6, uh, and then we had a sermon or two in between on other issues, but I want to get back to this series now uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, in the terms of the New Covenant. So I got into it a bit, uh, and then we had that uh, hiatus for a couple of weeks but let's get back to it now. I'll go back and read the verse, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, Christ was preaching this to his disciples, not to the multitude, but to his disciples who came, who came to him up on the mountain. And with his disciples, he set an example of, uh, to show that he is a man of his word, that he does what he says he will do. So we have a couple of examples where he fed the multitude. They came, they listened to him, they sat and listened for a long time and became hungry. So he says, let's feed them. And the disciples say, there's nothing to feed them with. We got these, what, five little fishes and two loaves of bread or vice versa, whatever it was. And he says, that's enough. That'll do. Pass it out. And when he got done, there were baskets left over. So he had preached this to them, and then he used them and what little food they had on hand to show that he could feed the masses at his own will and at his own discretion, and that he had the compassion to do so. He didn't say, tell them, we've been here long enough, go home and eat. He said, that's okay, I'll feed you. You're hungry. You'll be fed. Now, he's telling this on a spiritual level, and he was to the disciples. But then I think it's interesting that a couple of times he did that very thing. People were hungry, and he fed them by miracles, by miracles. Now, we got into this a little bit in that other sermon I went into the Hebrew and the Greek a bit, as well as the Webster's Dictionary, to give us a little clue of what righteousness is. And when you break it down, the root word for righteousness is right. It's just right. Justness is, is a state of being, a state of being right. So what does God want us to do? Righteousness is kind of a spiritual-sounding word, but we're supposed to do the th things the right way. That's all it means. Do things the right way. That means physically in our lives, everything we do should be done in a right manner, a God-approved manner. And if you'll notice through the Bible, 
there are many instructions for us about our physical lives. Not just spiritual, as you might say, but physical things. Go through the Proverbs. So many things there of wisdom and how to conduct a human life. Uh, he has many hints in the Bible about health and well-being and the way to eat. The things that he mentions that should be eaten as opposed to things that shouldn't be eaten. And he even says, he didn't, they didn't have sugar back when that was written. But he says, eat not much honey. Now, honey is good. And he wants us in a land flowing with milk and honey. But at the same time, he says, don't eat much sweets. Well, what is the American diet today? Mostly sweets of one form or another. High fructose or sugars of one kind or another. They don't eat much honey, true. Uh, they've gotten something poison instead of honey. Honey's not poison, but you don't need a lot of sweet in your diet is the point. Meat, vegetables, fruits, grains are mentioned in the Bible prominently. Fish, but not sweets. And sweets are mentioned to some degree, but not much. That tells you right there, there's a right way to eat and a wrong way to eat. Now, if I start getting into that and preaching it, I done quit preaching and started meddling. I understand that. But it's in here. And it ain't me. It's this that says don't eat many sweets. Not even good sweets. All right, let's do it right then. Shall we do it right? The right way. The way we work on a job. Do we give fair work for fair wage? Do we work right? Do we do the job right? That's what the Bible says. All the way through, the example is to work and work with zeal and whatever your hand finds to do, do with your might. So if you have a job, you're working for somebody, you do it with zeal and might. You don't just join the union and sit around and drink coffee all day and get paid for it. Now, maybe you have to be in a union. I don't know. I'm not saying don't, but I'm just saying you're there to work is what you're there for. And when you play, you play things that are acceptable to the Scripture, not the way the world plays. There's a big difference. So there's a right way and a wrong way. And if you live the right way, then that is righteousness, a state of doing things in a right manner. So don't spiritualize it away and just say, I'm just thinking righteous thoughts. No, try to do things the way God would do them. Christ lived here for 33 and a half years as a human being, and he conducted his life in a right manner, physically speaking, as well as spiritually speaking. But God made us physical, and it is the physical that we deal with, is it not? For the most part, day by day, it's the physical. How do we handle the physical? If we handle it according to his way, and Christianity is not just a set of rules, it is a way of life, the right way of life, the way Paul called it. We got to walk in the way of God, and that is righteousness. So what does he judge us by for the most part? How we conduct this physical life. How we treat our physical neighbors, how we treat businesses, how we treat everything that we come across day to day in life. He's judging, are they going to do it my way? Are they, would they do it the way I would do it if I were there? Honorable, honest, truthful, zealous, energetic. You know, there's a lot of proverbs about the lazy man's house falls in because he doesn't get up and fix the roof. I mean, obviously, you know, if it's raining, you can't get out and work in the rain to fix the roof. 
And if it's not raining, it isn't leaking. So why bother? (laughs) So the roof never gets fixed and falls in. Now, getting up there and fixing the roof is an act of righteousness. Do we equate these things? We need to. Because if God told us to be stewards, and he told Adam and Eve, and the very, the very first thing was dress and keep, take care of what you have before you as a responsibility. Take care of it. That's what they were to do. Except that one tree, they decided to play. <laughs> play with God's word, play with his instruction, Think about that tree and that fruit, and I wonder, you know, that might be fun. So you see the world out doing what they're doing, and you think, well, that looks like fun. And first thing you know, we can be involved. So easy. And we were involved, and then we came out of that, and we're not supposed to go back to that. So we have to hunger and thirst after doing things right. That should be a burning issue, in other words, in our mind, is whatever it is, physical or spiritual, we do it right. We do it the way God would do it. So we should hunger and thirst after and be full of zeal and energy to do things a right way. Now, I had a situation yesterday where my one goat was over at the neighbor's. And Christy pointed out, your goat's over here. She hollered across the fence. I hadn't missed her yet. I'd just gotten out to feed the animals. And I'm saying, how did she get there? Where did she get out? Did she go clear around the fences and get over there? And about that time, she came running back from over on their side of the fence and just jumped over. Well, mystery solved. I knew she liked to jump. I'd seen her jump fences to be with me when she was younger. But now she's older, she can still jump fences. Well, there was a place there where the fence was a little low. I hadn't, figured, I hadn't patched it right. Okay? I hadn't patched it right. I pulled the barbed wire down to help pull up the field fence. Instead, the barbed wire should have stayed straight and taut, and the field fence should have been had another post put in or something to bring it up instead of pulling one down to pull the other one up. So where it was down a little bit low, she jumped over. So it had to be fixed so she couldn't do that in that spot. Now she's going up and down trying to find another place that's low enough that she thinks she can jump over it. So, I need to be more zealous about my fences, okay? I need to be more diligent about my fences to do them the right way instead of in a way so that the goat can get over them. And God would account that as a righteous act. So with the neighbors, <laughs> you know, good fences make good neighbors, they say. So been, that saying's been around for a long, long time. Bad fences make bad neighbors. Why is your cow over here eating my grass? There's been a lot of ranchers and farmers come to guns over that issue. So there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And sometimes we fail to do it the right way, and then we suffer. (laughs) But God's watching all this. You going to do that right or not? How are you going to do that? And if we will do things right in a physical way, then spiritually we'll be well on our way, having established a pattern of handling physical things correctly, to handle the spiritual correctly. Because they go hand in hand. You can't do one without the other. What's that song? You can't have one without the other? (laughs) It'll come to me as I go on. Now it's bugging me. It's something. You can't have one without the other. But uh, they're both, both good things, but they had to go together. That's kind of the 
point of the song, as I recall. Love and marriage. Love and marriage, yeah. Thanks. Now I'll go on in peace. <laughs> All right. Let's go on down. I may have covered a couple of these, but I'll hit them again quickly as a reminder, and then we'll get into others that we haven't covered. But over in uh, John 6, I think I did go over this one and maybe a couple, three more. But you forgot that I did anyway, so it's okay. Verse uh, 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. He gave them manna, quail, from God. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So see how he ties the physical and the spiritual together, the terms of the Old Testament with physical food, and then he extrapolates that forward to the new covenant of spiritual food. The true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The quail and the manna gave them physical life, but he's offering us spiritual, eternal life through him. Then said they to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Yeah, we'd like to live evermore. We'd like to have that. And he said to them, I am, that's one of his titles, the I am. I am and I always will be is the implication. I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Well, you want to solve hunger and thirst? Go to Christ. There's the answer. There's where the true bread of not physical but everlasting life is. Is that something you'd want? Well, if you hunger and thirst after him and after eternal life, he says you will be satisfied. And he used that physical example I just went over of the fish and the bread to show that that is his will, that is his purpose. And when I say hunger and thirst, you will be satisfied, I'm going to feed this multitude to prove that what I'm saying is true not only now, but eternally. So this is something that is positive, and it will happen if we just follow that instruction. Hunger and thirst after him. And you will be satisfied evermore. Uh, Isaiah 49. I believe I went over this one as well, but let's look at it briefly again. Isaiah 49 and begin about uh, verse 8. Thus says the Eternal, In an acceptable time have I heard you, and in a day of salvation have I helped you. Now this is a prophecy for when he would be on the earth and when he would offer salvation, and then after he left on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come. It's a prophecy of that time. I will preserve you and give you for a covenant of the people to establish the earth. He's going to come back. We reign with him a thousand years, Revelation 5.10. To establish the earth. To cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Those areas that have been desolate will be uh, inhabited, including physical Jerusalem in this life and spiritual Jerusalem to come, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them, for he that has mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains a way, and my highways shall be exalted. And these shall come from far, these from the north, from the west, 
the land of Shinnom. It is a sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Eternal has comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. Now, we've been afflicted in the church by being spewed out as Laodiceans, not having the zeal and enthusiasm and the hunger for righteousness that we ought to have had. Now, he says we'll repent early and we will begin to truly seek him with all our hearts and that we will be found of him in Jeremiah 31. And here he's saying essentially the same thing. I've come, I've offered you this, now... If you will do what you should, the desert will bloom as a rose. There will be springs in the desert. He's going to physically do this as an example to the physical world. And then he's going to do it on a spiritual level when he and the Father come at the beginning of the millennium. So we have two fulfillments of this just ahead of us. But 14, Zion said, The Eternal's forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. And then he talks about, can a woman forget her nursing child? No, he says, I haven't forgotten you whatsoever. You just aren't having faith. That's what that amounts to. Because he says what he's going to do. And if we feel like, well, where is he? He's forsaken us. He's not listening to us. He's not answering our prayers. Why hasn't this thing happened? It's been in here all this time. I've been preaching it now for 25 years. Hadn't happened yet. Am I going to say, God forgot us. Might as well just give up. He forsaken us. It's not going to happen. No. Just believe it. He says it's going to happen. So, we believe that, and we move forward, living the right way in righteousness, until it happens, because it will. And it's getting very, very close now. People will come after you, verse 17. Your children shall make haste. Your destroyers and they that made you waste shall flee from you, go forth from you. We've got that prophecy there in the beginning of Isaiah, what is it, 8 or 9, somewhere along there where it says that the Assyrian will try to enslave us the way they did Egypt. And that it will be a very short while, and then God will send them fleeing, and he'll take care of us. I was just musing on that a little this morning. Is that already beginning to occur? That they've come and tried to put diapers on our mouths? That they're going to make us take a vaccination so we can buy and sell and fly and go in stores? Is that oppression and pushing us into slavery of Isaiah happening before our very eyes? I think so. But they they won't succeed in enslaving you and me. Because God says, he'll send them away. He says, don't fear. That same verse, I looked it up this morning. Don't fear the Assyrian. All right? Are you afraid of the communists? Are you afraid of the Russians and afraid of the Iranians and afraid of our politicians in in Washington who are against us? No. We're not to be afraid of it. God says, I'll take care of you. I don't live in fear. He tells me right there in Isaiah 7 not to fear the conspiracy, not to worry about it. There is one, and it will take over, but don't you fear it, because I will take care of you. So when he says, hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you'll be satisfied, means that these scriptures will come to pass, and you will be filled. You will be taken care of, both physically and spiritually. Isaiah 54 echoes this very much because here he shows a fulfillment of that. It's right after 53, which talks about Christ and what he went through at Passover. And immediately after that, 
Uh, he to- tells us to sing, O barren that did not bear. They kept trying to bring forth and couldn't, remember those scriptures? You're going to break forth into singing and cry aloud, You that did not travail with a child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. So he says, enlarge your tent. Things are going to happen. And I've thought Joel 2 might be coming in right after Passover because the context here shows the Passover in Christ is an inner, an inset. And then it shows the blessing coming. So I don't know. And I think it could be a combination of both if he does something to begin this thing in January. Remember Joel 2 says that he'll bless us in the first month. And then later on, the young men and women and different ones will dream dreams and have visions and he'll pour out his spirit on everyone. It could be January and April as opposed to Passover and Pentecost. I don't know. But there's something in the pattern and our nation is coming apart, it looks like, in January, or beginning the real unraveling, uh, because we may see riots and trouble and ruler against ruler and violence in the land that Jeremiah predicts. Um, it looks like it's about to start. But anyway, back to this. He says, our maker's our husband, and he won't forget us. We just read in... 49, that, or no, in 40, where was it, 40? Yeah, it was 49. That he won't forget us. Verse 7, For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. Well, it's been basically from 86 till now. He's hidden his face. To him, that's just a moment. To you and me, it's a long time. Better part of a lifetime. <laughs> But to him, it's a small little while. For he says, this is just like the waters of Noah. I promised Noah, and it happened just like I said it would. And this is the same situation. His lasted a hundred years, and since Herbert Armstrong was called in 1926 and 27, it appears this is all going to take a hundred years until it's over with. But the blessings come to us ahead of that hundred years. Anyway, he goes on down, uh, verse 14, In righteousness shall you be established. So, we have to do things right and be established in righteousness. How can we be an example and a light to the world from Zion if we aren't doing things the right way? That's why here at the end, all things have to be restored. We have to restore the right way of doing things, the right doctrines, the right procedures, the right way, God's way. Because out of Zion has to proceed the right way, the righteousness. Because you're there as an example to the world. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. They'll gather together but not by me. And whoever does gather together against you shall fall for your sake. Absolute promise he'll take care of us if we're doing righteousness. Verse 17, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me. It's his right way, not the way that seems right to a man that ends in death. He puts it that way. There's a way that seems right to a man. So his way, he considers the right way, and he considers himself righteous in doing it his way. And therefore, we come up with self-righteousness, or I am right, and you're wrong because I'm always right. Or like the t-shirt says, I'm not arguing with you. I'm explaining why I'm right. Our way seems right. Your way seems wrong. Well, we've got to be convinced God's way is right, and then these blessings will accrue to us. 
So, do we hunger and thirst for His way? Do we think about it a lot? I'm not going to go back and show all the places David said that in the Psalms, but we have one of the songs we sing. Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day in my thoughts. That's Psalm 119.97. And he says the same thing in 119 and several other verses, how he seeks God and seeks his way, and he thinks about and meditates on God's ways. He wanted to do things right. Did David always do things right? No. He made mistakes. He committed idolatry. When you put your desires and what you want to do ahead of what God says do, that's idolatry. Colossians 3, 19 I think it is, says that covetousness is idolatry. So when the woman stood up and had a bath in his sight, he coveted her, and that was idolatry because he was putting what looked good to him ahead of what God said do. Now, he could have had multiple wives. God even told him, David, why didn't you just ask me? I would have given you some more. But you took somebody else's. That wasn't the thing to do. And he enjoyed killing people too much. And he didn't get to build the temple because of it. Now, I don't know how that developed. Maybe it was when he killed Goliath that he began as a young man to think, wow, that was pretty impressive. Now, he attributed it to God, remember, that this Philistine stood against the armies of the eternal God. So he gave God credit for the victory. But did that start a little something in his mind? I don't know exactly how it transpired. But then when he went to war against the Philistines and others, he wasn't just trying to get rid of an enemy. He somehow, in all of that, came to the point where he was enjoying hacking heads off. It had become a game. Kind of like our on-screen games that kids and adults play today. Where it's all about killing zombies or killing this or destroying that. Nearly every one of those games has nothing to do with anything but some kind of destruction. Nearly all the movies that come out now are about destruction, unbridled violence. That's not the right way. That's not God's way. David got into video games in a very real way. (laughs) He was literally chopping heads off and creating all kinds of mayhem and violence. And he got to the point that that became a matter of entertainment for him instead of just driving the enemies out. That would have been okay to kill them for that. But he crossed a line when he began to enjoy it. And for that, God would not let him build a temple. Now, David learned from those things with Bathsheba and Uriah with having killed those people and enjoying it too much, because he so much wanted to build a temple for God. He even amassed everything to do it with ahead of time, knowing he couldn't, but he had such a zeal and such a desire for it that he went ahead and made all the preparations and did everything he could to make it happen. And then Solomon did it in his stead. So, even though he made some mistakes and had problems in his life, he learned to have a zeal for God and to put that energy into serving God and meditating on His law and keeping His law with a daily thought process, meditating on it, thinking about it. What would God have me do? I did this wrong, I did that wrong, how would God have me do it? What's the right way here? I did it the wrong way. I'm going to fix this. And he did it with diligence. So when he sinned, he sinned with diligence. And when he repented, he repented with diligence. And he obeyed with diligence. He hungered and thirsted after God. And that's one of the greatest lessons you get as you go through the book of Psalms, how often 
the psalmist will say how he longs for thy courts, O Lord, or statements of that nature. And he was a man after God's own heart because he did have a hunger and a thirst for God and God's way, and he wanted to be in God's kingdom, and he worked at it. Now, is he going to be satisfied? You bet. He's going to be king over all Israel throughout all eternity. He'll be satisfied. That was one of the things he fought as a human being was people trying to take over his kingdom. His sons, different ones. who Abner, different ones wanted to take over. And he fought with that. And he wrestled with that. He had enemies. Now... Satan's going to be deposed, he'll be king of all Israel, and he'll never have another enemy come after him. And he can rule in peace and prosperity throughout all eternity over you and me and others. All the world, really, when you come down to it, because God is going to save most people when it's all said and done. So it's going to turn out and he will be satisfied. And he promises us the same thing. You know, we're in some ways, in a minor way, living the same way David did. His enemies were trying to hack his head off. Ours are just trying to run us off, this property. And they make a mess of things. You know what, I just got a bill, just just happened to think of it, it just came through on email yesterday afternoon late, of over $2,500 that the lawyer spent in this past month trying to keep Gloria Moss from having to give a deposition that I hadn't sold her land. Now, I never brought the idea up. It never formulated. never thought of selling any land to her or anybody else. Because I have felt from the very beginning God gave us this land, and I have been under the impression that I was never to sell it. Any of it. And that has been, that is why we did leases in the first place rather than giving deeds. is so it couldn't be sold. That was my whole object and purpose. And then somewhere, somehow, they came up with the idea that I had sold a couple of acres. I don't know what it will cost to debunk that lie. It's already been over $2,500 just this last month just for him to make up stuff to send the court and the other lawyer to prove that that hadn't occurred. It hadn't occurred. It had never even been thought of. And yet we have people who somehow came up with the idea and sent it to the court and are trying to accuse me of selling land, which I had no idea or inkling at all to sell. Where do they come up with that? Out of the sky blue, I suppose. I don't know. But totally untrue, totally fabricated, and then sent to the court, to a superior court, with no basis in fact, no evidence whatsoever, no way of proving any such allegation in any form or fashion, and yet we have to defend it. I got to send the lawyer twenty five hundred bucks just for that, and it'll probably get bigger as it goes. So yeah, we got enemies the same way David did. Nothing's changed. You go up there the first few chapters of Ezekiel, chapter four, six, wherever it is. It says you'll dwell among scorpions and spiders, and uh, scorpions and and uh, Metals, something like that. Well, here we are, getting stung left and right, pricked left and right by people who are trying to make a case and get rid of me and you with lies. So, nothing's changed. Everything's the same. Prophecy repeats. Events repeat. There are patterns through the Bible that always repeat. So we're just going through, in a way, in a lesser degree, 
than David was. How do we handle it? Do we go to God seeking the right way and to do things right ourselves and to obey and serve him with all our hearts and be satisfied? Whereas he says our enemies are going to be chased out. It's going to happen in the church and ultimately it will happen in the nation. Now our enemies have been here and they've hurt us and they'll hurt us some more before they're gone. We have enemies coming against our nation, and they're going to hurt us and hurt us bad before they're gone. But then Christ will return, and the millennium will occur, and our enemies will be gone, both as a church and as a nation. Those patterns repeat. So we're putting up with a little something now. It's the same thing David put up with, same thing the disciples become apostles put up with being thrown in jail. They've been trying to get me in jail on various charges, murder being one of them, of somebody that I loved with all my heart. Why would I have killed her? You know, it just doesn't make any sense at all. But when people want something, they'll do anything to get it. Come into my house, steal my hard drive, and copy it to try to find something on me. They did it. I got evidence. They did it. We're going to get a whole sermon about that. But we need to realize that these things are on us the same way they've been on people in the past. Because we're here at the end time doesn't mean we won't go through the same things that people always have. And those things were written to us who would go through these things at the end. And not only do we have enemies here on this property, but it isn't very long Get used to it and learn how to handle it now, would you? Because it isn't going to be long before the whole world, every last one of them out there, hate us with a passion. It's only a few months away. Maybe two, three years at max. And the way it's developing right now, it's at the door. So... Don't be prepared to be hated by a dozen or so. Be prepared to be hated by a few billion. (laughs) Because it's coming. Now, in the face of that, what should we be doing? Hungering and thirsting after the right way so that we can go to Zion and show a right example to the world. That's what God has got us here to do. That's our purpose to build a righteous temple within our bodies and minds and a physical temple for the world to point to. Both have to be done. Let's go to Luke 1. Here, uh, this is John the Baptist's dad. He's talking about his son, Verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the eternal to prepare his way. So happens that John the Baptist turned out to be the most righteous man that ever walked the earth to that point. And Christ, of course, was more righteous than he, and nobody's even come close since. But he was to live in holiness and righteousness. And John the Baptist then is held up as an example for us to be right, to be righteous, and to be holy. That's, that was his goal. That was his life. He knew his cousin was going to become the Christ, the Messiah. And he knew that his job was to go before him and prepare the way. So he had to do things right for the truly righteous one to come behind him. And that's what we are called upon to do today. And we will be satisfied. We have that promise right there when he says to do it. John 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast... 
Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But from deep within us will come truth, will come life, will come his Spirit. The fruit of his Spirit will come bubbling out. The fruit of His Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and all 13 of those things, I think it is, that He mentions there in Galatians. That will bubble up out of us. That is what is to be. His water. Hunger and thirst after what He has to offer. So if you're going to hunger and thirst after righteousness, who do you go to? The righteous one. You go to Him to come to have that because you cannot become righteous on your own. You cannot do things always right on your own. You're human. Your mind is desperately wicked and deceitful. The only way you can do right is follow him who is right. So, if you want righteousness and you hunger and thirst for it, you go to God regularly. Because he is the one who established right, and does right, and lives right, and all of his ways are right. So if you want to be right, go to the source. If you want to be wrong, go to the source. Satan is the source of all wrong. So you either, you've, you've only got two choices. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You either seek he who is right, or he who is wrong. And anything in between is wrong. That's why the song said that. Accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. <laughs> Some of you are not old enough to know that song, but I remember it. I'll be old enough to forget it pretty soon, maybe too. <laughs> Whatever. You seek God... And you expunge anything satanic or worldly or anything in your mind that is unright. John 4, verse 13. Okay. Well, 12, are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? That was always the first question that Pharisees or Judaism would come up with, was Moses, Jacob, Isaac. They looked to them, and they didn't want to look to Christ. Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in, in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So the woman said, I want some of that. And I hope we're sitting here reading this and saying, I want some of that. I want to live forever, and I want to live, live forever in Peace and in righteousness and in harmony and love. What more could you ask than that? You know? What little girl is dreaming a dream? And she dreams of this knight in shining armor who comes riding in on a white horse. And she jumps down out of the balcony and lands in his lap. And they ride off and live happily ever after. The object of her dream is to live happy and to live always. That's in the stories that little girls and big girls read. Because that's what they want. Is that what you want? Well, we got a knight in shining armor that's going to come. <laughs> There's some truth to those fairy stories. This one isn't a fairy story. This one's what's going to happen. He'll take us off and marry us and live with us forever and evermore 
and total peace and security and love. That's every girl's dream on a physical level. Is it our dream on a spiritual level? I think so, or we wouldn't be here. Well, do we dream about it? Do we think about it? Do we meditate about it? Do we spend our time trying to be the kind of person that he would want to have land in his saddle and go away with us forevermore? That's what he wants us to be. We're going to get to one down here about faith as opposed to living by the law. See, living by the law, and Romans 10 explains it, and we'll get to it, but I, I interject it here a little bit. Living by the law is a good thing. The law of God is good. It's holy and righteous. It's a wonderful thing. But it can't save you. And you break it once and you die. Unless there's some way to be redeemed from the penalty of the law. So the law can't save you. We've all broken it. <laughs> so we're all doomed to death unless what we've done can be forgiven. So he says the opposite of that is having faith. Okay, how is that? How do you get that to the ground? Are you spinning your wheels or do you get some traction? How, how do we get traction with that? Well, the point is, he says, I'm going to be a knight in shining armor. I am going to come down and I am going to take you away and marry you if you'll be a proper bride to me. So, we believe him, right? We believe he's going to do that. It's an actual fact that he is going to do that. So you don't live by the law so much as you live in faith that what he said he will do. So you try to live the right way so he'll look down and say, I want that one. That one with the long blonde hair that's sitting in the balcony waiting for me. That's the one I want. I want the one who locked her door and went to bed and when I knock on the door, she jumps up and runs to open the door, not the one to say, oh, wait a minute, it's cold in here and I have my teddy bear. And he knocked, and I'm quoting from the Song of Songs. And he knocked and went away. And then she had to run around looking for him through the city. It reminds me of the story of the ten virgins. Go find oil. So it does come down to belief in Christ, that he will do what he says, and therefore we will live his way and develop ourselves as the kind of bride he'd want. So that when he looks down to build his crowns, to give the jewels, as he says in Malachi, he'll look for those who are talking about him. He'll look for those who are obeying him and serving him and doing the right thing. That's the ones he's going to make the crowns for. And give them a new song that only they can sing. So, eternal life comes not through keeping the law, per se. It comes from believing the dream. And living in such a way that he'll say, can't pass that one up, got to have that one as my bride. That's the position you want to be in. So therefore, it is the faith that he will answer properly that leads you to walk in faith, doing the things you ought to do so that the dream will come true. It's similar in a way to the American dream. This nation became very, very wealthy. People had nice homes and nice cars and all kinds of things. And people in other countries were just barely eating and going through lives of poverty and oppression from bad governments and death and destruction and all kinds of problems out there. So they came to dream of America as the place where all my dreams will come true. 
I can be wealthy, I can have a house, I can have a car, I can have a marriage, I can have children, I can do everything that I want. Now what's happening to that dream? (laughs) It's diminishing very, very rapidly. And there's a scripture that says they're going to go right back where they came from. It's going to get so bad here, they say, oh, I wish I was back in Guatemala. Oh, I wish I was back in Brazil. And they'll go back home. Because this is going to be a nightmare here. Now, why do I believe that? Because that's what all these prophecies say is going to happen. I believe God. I believe His Word. And therefore, I'm trying to do everything I can to please Him. And every night, I go to Him and I say, Sorry, I didn't live up to it. I want to be a better bride-to-be. I want to be a better candidate. I'm sorry. Forgive me for what I thought, what I did this day. And every morning I pray, help me do better today. (laughs) It's a new day. Give me another chance. And he says in Lamentations, he will. Because his sacrifice is always there for us. He's always merciful. He's always compassionate. He says, if you hunger and thirst after me, you will be satisfied. You will be filled. So we grab that. We hang on to that. And we say, I'll do it your way. I want to be satisfied. The things in this world give very short periods of satisfaction. Didn't Paul say something about the temporary pleasures of the world? Where we can be maybe satisfied a little physically, emotionally with something. But it doesn't last because it's not eternal. So he wants us to seek the things that will truly satisfy forever and will never hunger and thirst for anything again. That's what living in faith is all about. That's really all it is. I believe you. And you said, I need to do this and this, and you would choose me, and you would fill me. So, I'm going to get busy doing it. I'm going to live hungering and thirsting after the dream. That will not become a dream that passes, but a reality, because God said so. Believe that, and you're believing on or in Christ. And he says that's what's required is to truly believe him and act accordingly and you'll be satisfied. Good place to stop.